Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hi. Mm. I always feel like starting that here because uh, just to mm, puncture, uh, not puncture, but invite another um, state than any kind of um, seriousness that you might have gotten and getting you overly serious because... Uh, it helps to be a bit open, I think, to be able to um, hear the Dharma and share it together. But if you want to, if you're in a very quiet mode and um, seriousness is up for you, that's fine too. <clears throat> Just be right where you are. But I want to talk about happiness tonight. <clears throat> so <clears throat> be ready. Hmm. I want to talk about practice as a path to happiness. Sometimes we can get um, so moved and, uh, and touched by the depth of the Dharma, and uh, this is very profound stuff that we're doing, um, with a lot of emphasis on suffering and coming to the end of suffering. And uh, sometimes we can forget that this is about going for happiness. The Buddha said, go for the highest happiness and all the other ones will follow. And he was called the happy one among other names. The happy one. The Dalai Lama starts out his wonderful book, The Art of Happiness. Great opening line for a book. The purpose of life is to be happy. <clears throat> but um, we can get serious, and, I, and I'm talking about myself in here as well. Uh, I've been exploring happiness for uh, for some time now, and as uh, I think I mentioned before, and perhaps you you knew anyway, I've been writing about happiness and, and joy for uh, for a while. And the reason I have been so interested in it is that um, being generally a fairly um, happy person, for a while I, I lost my joy. I lost my um, lightness and practice became very serious in a, in a profound way. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. It's very important for this stuff to be taken seriously. But I lost my, my aliveness. And um, I think I said earlier in one of the talks, um, I have a lot of passion and I like to celebrate life. And uh, there was a period there where I mixed up the end of 
suffering with the end of living. And, um, and it went on for a while until I kind of reclaimed my genuine nature and wanted to see where I'd gone wrong, how I'd distorted the teachings and got confused. Um, and once I did explore that, I saw that these teachings are all about happiness. But it's easy. I'm not alone in this. I've seen this in a number of people. It's easy to somehow uh, miss miss that that fact that it's about happiness and um, and like me, perhaps uh, getting overly serious. This is not something that there is a, a possible reason for these uh, misunderstandings. Um, the last last talk or the one before it, I think I talked about Samvega, you know, the the meaningless seeing the meaninglessness of the the cycle of of um, of life as it is normally lived, and the chastening sense of needing to uh, to find a deeper meaning and get off the off the cycle. Well, as it is normally lived, is is as I said the other day, is the key. But there are a few ways that um, the teachings can sometimes be understood or heard that um, that miss that can lead one to a, a seriousness. There's one uh, teaching uh, called Nibbida. I didn't talk about this here, did I? Nibbida, um, which is a very um, a very important and powerful point in practice. Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which is sometimes translated as um, one should have uh, utter disgust for the five aggregates. That's in some translations. One should have revulsion for the five aggregates, this mind and body and other minds and bodies. And you read that, depending upon your translation, you say, whoa, okay, you should have utter disgust for this mind and body. And that can be a a message that can sometimes come through depending upon who you're studying with, what what master. Actually, the word nibida and... uh, Andy Olinsky has a great um, essay on this. The word nibida is uh, more accurately translated as disenchantment. One should have disenchantment with regard to the five aggregates. Disenchantment, that means not being enchanted by them, breaking the spell of enchantment. And so you see through that normal grasping and wanting and craving. But sometimes the utter disgust and revulsion can, can kind of come through, and it did for me. And I, I remember on one 
one retreat, one uh, one master saying every every talk he'd end with, may you speedily uh, escape from this world of samsara and realize nibbana. And um, saying that with the greatest compassion and 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 caring. But my mind said, oh, this is, let's get out of here as fast as we can. And um, as I said, I got a little caught for a while. What is that? Where's the joy in that? And I lost my joy, as I said. Now, the Buddha talks about joy as one of the factors of enlightenment. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas. There are many kinds, many flavors of happiness that are spoken of in the teachings. There's PT, rapture or bliss or joy. There's pamoja, gladness. There's sukha, happiness or contentment. Many, many flavors of of well-being, but we can um, miss them. This is a couple of references. The Buddha, this is one translation of verse in the Dhammapada. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. And this from Ajahn Sumedho. It's very quotable and wise. Theravadan monk, the most highly respected, at least Western Theravadan uh, monastic alive, He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. So, after getting lost for a while, as I said, I wanted to look at the teachings and, and see what, um, what principles there are for opening up to happiness. And I found a, a few that I um, found very inspiring. Let me see, do I have this? 
uh, and um, uh, have put in my mind as an approach to happiness uh, of of uh, Buddha Dharma's approach to happiness. Three principles, particularly. One is uh, the teaching on wise effort, right effort. There are four aspects of wise effort. Perhaps you know this. There's working with unwholesome states, guarding against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen, and overcoming unwholesome states that have arisen. Okay, we probably are familiar with those. And then on wise effort, on the positive side, there is developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen and maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen. That's wise effort. Developing wholesome states that haven't yet arisen, like what we're doing here, practicing, just being mindful. Perhaps you're doing metta practice and you're maybe not feeling it as you start, but as you keep on planting those seeds, you're developing wholesome states that, that will come in their own time. And then that maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen, he says, this is a very good thing. You know, sometimes we can get so cautious and thinking, uh-oh, am I getting attached? I better not, better not try to keep this here. Well, he says, this is fine to maintain and increase wholesome states. If you're doing it from a place of attachment, you're going to be caught in suffering. But if you do it in a skillful way, and there are skillful ways to do it, then um, this is a good thing. So that's one principle, the wise efforts, particularly about cultivating the wholesome. In another discourse, he talks about the gladness that's connected with the wholesome. He says, when you are in the middle of a wholesome state, it feels good. He doesn't say it quite like that. He says, there is gladness that's connected with the wholesome. And he says, this is an equipment of mind, this gladness connected with the wholesome is an equipment of mind to overcome ill will and hostility. And he gives the example, I didn't mention this, did I? Did I talk about this before? No. I've given a few talks outside of here and I'm just, if I repeat myself, just kind of go like this. Or just bear with it. And uh, he says, he gives the example, you're in the middle of a generous act. This is one of the equipments of mind. And he says, um, one should reflect, one should think, I'm being generous. That's right there. Oh, I'm generous. First time I read that, I thought, whoa, well, that that could get you on an, an ego trip, couldn't it? You know, like, hey, You see? Check it out. You see how generous I am? No, 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 no. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying 
let yourself feel how good it feels for generosity to move through you. And when you do, there is this gladness that's associated with it that gladdens the heart, gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in in the Dharma. And that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind. So he says, pay attention when you're in the middle of the wholesome state and let yourself feel the gladness of it. Not taking ownership of it, not saying, oh, look at me, hey, cool, this is a wholesome moment, everybody check it out, but just, oh, how good it feels. No ownership at all, just allowing for it to be experienced. And then the the third way that I've seen this as a, as a direct path to happiness is um, practicing. I think I might have, I did mention this in the, the talk on intention, this line from Majima 19, he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So if you frequently think and ponder upon how life is a drag, or I'm such a rotten person, or whatever, you can fill in the thoughts that maybe have plagued you from time to time in the last days or weeks, you will be, that will be the inclination of your mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon things that create that gladness, that open up to wholesome states, as he suggests, as you practice that more and more, that will become the inclination of your mind. So, I'd like to share with you um, a few principles or a few areas that I've been working with in these last few years that incline towards wholesome states, that are wholesome states and ways to, uh, to work with them. Um, and in this, I mentioned uh, earlier that I, I teach this course. In this course, there are 10 that I, that I found helpful to keep inclining and over a period of time as, as people do that they just start to shift their uh, the default setting of the heart that's what I like to think of it as and the first which I'll just mention briefly um, is that of intention I gave a whole talk on intention earlier intention is this inclining the mind as we see where happiness really lies, then we have a, a, a commitment to an aspiration to bring that in our, more and more into our life. Now, the important thing is to see where happiness really lies. That's the key. Because it's easy to get seduced or confused and thinking, oh, well, maybe this... Uh, third dessert will do it for me. This is not where happiness really lies. Happiness, 
wholesome states, which are states that lead to well-being, have a very different feel than unwholesome states, states that lead to suffering. Uh, let's just do a little bit of, of audience participation, if, if you will. When you're in the middle of a wholesome state, how does it feel? How do you know that it's wholesome? Anyone? Delightful. Delightful. Okay. It's spacious. Yeah. Good. We'll just take a few. There's no one right answer I'm looking for. Radiant. Mm -hmm. A lot of love. Any others? Open heart. Okay. All of those that mentioned, we could probably go on for a while, all have to do with a quality of expansion. Open heart, spacious, radiant. There's, there's a, it's a, a generative, whoops, generative quality of opening. That's a good indication. Not only in your mind, but your body also feels open and uh, ready to receive, but also ready to give. It's more like ready to give. An unwholesome state, if you've had any in the last weeks or so. How does that feel? Contracted. Contracted. Yeah. What's that? Heavy. Heavy. Yeah. Tight. Uh-huh. Rigid. Yeah. You get the kind of you get the picture? All of these basically, as as you're saying, is are movements of contraction. Either there's an, uh, a feeling of contraction as you're grasping, as you want to hold something, possess it. Mm. As good as it might, f- you think it will feel, it doesn't feel to be that contracted, does it? Or you want to protect yourself if you've got a lot of aversion or anger or ill will, which slips into all of our minds from time to time. We're protecting ourselves against or striking out against, and again, it's this feeling of contraction, tightness, rigidity. So that's one way that you might check out for yourself if there's a wholesomeness to your particular mind state or an unwholesomeness. There's an ease, there's an openness, there's a uh, spaciousness as opposed to contraction. So all of these are different, different kinds of wholesome states and starting with the intention the intention when you incline your mind this is different than grasping sometimes and I'm, as I said I gave a talk on this intention is not about getting your goal getting has it, is it there yet do we have it it's simply an invitation whether it's inclining your mind towards mindfulness. As you sit down, you come into the hall. You know, may I be mindful? You know, the, the words may I, which are the, the beginning of so many um, of the meta phrases and of well-wishing. May this happen. It's, it's a lovely way to say it. It's not, it's not, come on, please. It's just, may it happen. You're, you're inviting the universe or life or the Dharma to respond. And it's simply an inclination towards that. You know, you say, metta, 
may, may I be filled with love. Even if you're not filled with love, may I be filled, may that happen. May I be, it's, you're really saying, may I be open to this happening. And as you do that, it's like you're kind of tuning that channel, the possibility of that happening, so that you can recognize it, perhaps, if it does. Not sitting there with a report card and saying, oh gosh, it's not here yet. You're just inviting it. And you can incline the mind towards freedom, the highest intention. You can incline the mind towards whatever facet of that freedom, whether you think of it as love or wisdom or liberation. You can incline it towards happiness. And whether you think of it as the highest happiness or other wholesome kinds of happiness, that's, um, that's a good start. <clears throat> the other day I invited people to get in touch with their intention. Remember, if you were here, your highest intention. And just for a moment... <clears throat> Get in touch with your intention to go for happiness. Whatever that means for you in the most wholesome way, not with grasping, but what would it mean if you're truly happy? When you say the phrase, may I be happy, you're saying it all the time in the metta practice. What does that mean? May I be happy. Wishing that for yourself or for others. There's a part of you that really wants to be happy. Okay, in fact, I'll just ask, does anybody not want to be happy here? I didn't think so. That means there's a part of you, no matter how hidden or obscured, there is a part of you that's really rooting for your happiness. Even in desperation when you say, please, you know, oh, get me out of this. That's coming from a place that really is wishing for your welfare. So it's connecting with that place that really wants your happiness and just inclining it that way. <clears throat> in that book, I didn't bring it with me, that uh, book that, uh, that I love, I showed before how we choose to be happy those uh for those who weren't here i mentioned it's a it's a book to these friends who researched 300 or more happy people over the course of three years and the one common denominator whether it was conscious or unconscious were each of those people decided to go for happiness which is not so common. A lot of times people want to go for success or want to, go, want to be loved. Really, they want those things so that they will be happy, but they stop short instead of whatever it is that I'm meant to do, may it, may it lead to greater happiness. So the intention to be happy is the start. Then, and that's a wholesome 
quality, a wholesome state. Then um, the basic tool of happiness is, guess what? Mindfulness. And it's the basic tool for a few reasons. One is, as it says in Satipatthana Sutta, it is the most direct way to overcome ill will, end pain, anxiety, sorrow, lamentation, and realize the highest happiness. Mindfulness does that because it has the power to develop and strengthen all the wholesome states of mind and weaken all the unwholesome states of mind. It's amazing when you think about it. It's the only factor that I'm I'm aware of that has that unique property that it weakens all the unwholesome states and strengthens all the wholesome states. You know, that's why it's the center of the seven factors of enlightenment or it's the it's the start, it's the balancing factor, it brings up all the other six. It's the center of the five spiritual faculties. It balances faith and wisdom and concentration and energy. Mindfulness does it. So that's one reason why it's such a key tool. And then there's a few other ways that uh, on a practical level it works. That when you're mindful... One way that it works is that it interrupts negative thoughts. When you're spinning your wheels and you can come back and just know that you're sitting here breathing or know that you're sitting here sitting, know that you're in a body, in that moment you can come back and not spin out as much. Not spin out at all in the moment that you're here. I'll share with you, I'll share with you a story for, for me, how I, I, I saw the power of, of mindfulness uh, in my own practice. You know, you just kind of wonder, whoa, what, what is all this, all this stuff that we're doing? You know, where's the payoff? Well, a number of years ago, um, I was um, I was in Yucca Valley, and um, I had had um, I had had some uh, eye surgery, some cataract uh, cataract surgery, and it was great. I and I don't know if I said this. I only see out of one eye. I only see out of my right eye. I don't see out of my left eye since many years. So it. It's not a big thing. I mean, that's, it's fine. I've gotten along fine that way. But this is on my good eye. I had surgery on my good eye, and it was fantastic. I could see better than I ever could. I even could go without glasses and, and uh, for a while drive without glasses. <clears throat> Almost, but close. Anyway, I was at the retreat, and I started seeing some just a funny little... I couldn't tell whether it was my imagination or something in my field of vision that just was a little suspicious. It was like somebody was pulling a shade over uh, one corner of my eye. And I called up my friend Mark, who's an ophthalmologist in, in San Francisco, and I, 
I told him, I said, what do you think? It was like a couple of days before I said, yeah, I think there's something there. And I said, do you think I should get it checked out? He said, yeah, I think you should get it checked out. So I went to, and he gave me the number of somebody at Palm Springs and um, went to the eye, the, the eye clinic, uh, the, the eye doctor there, ophthalmologist. And um, I didn't think it was anything. But I sat down. She dilated my eye, and I was feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden, she got very quiet. And I said, mm, yeah. And then she turned on the lights and said, um, you have a giant retinal tear on this eye, which sometimes can happen after cataract surgery. She said, uh, I advise that you get on the next plane back to San Francisco or stay here and have procedure right now for the next, and uh, you'll be here for about five or six weeks, though. So, whoa, okay. And I decided to, uh, I was going to go back to the, to San Francisco. I couldn't see staying there for five or six weeks. And I went back, and I got, I got in my car, and all of a sudden, things got really dark. I could, it was much darker than when I left, although it was, night was starting to fall. And uh, I was driving by myself. My mind, it was so interesting. It was the most interesting car ride I've ever had in my life. There it was. I was driving. My mind said, oh, my God, I'm going to go blind. You know, What if... And then it just somehow it said, just come back right now. You don't know what's going to happen next week. Oh, my son is 11. God, is he going to be a... Uh, you know, caretaking for me through his teenage years. You don't know. Feel the steering wheel. Oh my God, how am I going to travel and go on retreats? Come back to your breath. I did that. It was about, must have been 50, at least 50 times on that 45-minute ride home. The amazing thing was that somehow I kept on coming back. I don't know what I know what it would have been like if I hadn't had the practice to just come back and say, oh, this is happening right now. Don't have to go there. Don't have to let my mind spin out. What is happening right now? It's very powerful when you realize that possibility is always here in every moment. No matter where your mind goes, you can come right back. There's another way that mindfulness works, and I'm going to go on to the other ones in a moment, but this is a key for the purpose of this, of this exploration, that mindfulness, when you bring mindfulness to a wholesome state, it amplifies it. Like, like he said, that gladness connected with the wholesome is, is an equipment of mind. When you actually feel what it's like to feel good. It's very different than kind of knowing you feel good. Oh yeah, feeling pretty good. What's for lunch? If you take some time to feel what it's like to feel good, all it takes is a few moments, you anchor it in your consciousness. This is something that um, that has been shown again and again through neuroscience. I think I mentioned it here, the, you know, the famous line, neurons that fire together, wire together. 
as you keep on paying attention to those wholesome states, you start to deepen them. And so with all the other wholesome states, maybe the ones that I get through, will take a little bit of an exercise bringing it bringing that mindfulness to it. In fact, we can do one simple one right now. Just for a moment, think of something that brings you joy. And it can be, it doesn't have to be the most profound dharmic thing. It can be snowboarding or eating a peach or whatever. You know, just something that's not hurtful to anybody. Just let yourself, for a moment, have an image of whatever that is. And remember why you enjoy it so much. And let yourself feel in your body what it's like to feel delight or to feel joy or well-being. And turn your awareness to explore the landscape of it inside. Where do you feel joy? Where do you feel well-being or happiness or contentment or whatever flavor it is for you? How do you know? What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? You can open your eyes. Could you feel it? Isn't that cool? You just kind of turn your awareness there. It's free. You know, you don't have to do go any place. That's one of the wonderful things about joy or happiness. And when I sometimes I use the word joy, sometimes happiness, sometimes contentment. There's lots of different flavors, or well-being is really the heart of it, that the Buddha said the joy is already inside of us. You know, sure, you might have thought about something that triggered it, but where, where is it? You were, you were just remembering, and here it is right now. That's the amazing thing when you're practicing, that as the mind starts getting a little bit more space, amidst the moments of dukkha, there's also this well-being that comes more and more. Otherwise, you wouldn't be coming back and doing this thing. Why would you do that if it was only dukkha? It's like you get in touch with a, with a feeling of, of, of goodness in there that, that just is so compelling. If you're doing concentration practice, you know, and I know some people are staying here for, for the, the concentration retreat with, with Park. I mean, the key, the Buddha said, this is a kind of happiness that I will let myself have. It's not going for anything out there. It's like it's already in here. Rapture, happiness, contentment, equanimity. It's already in here. It's not fabricated. It's not something you manufacture. It's just in here and getting through the obscurations to see, oh, This is right here. So when you're mindful, it's not like you're creating anything. You're just shining a light on what's already here. So lots of different 
wholesome states. Let's get through, go through a few of them. One is um, gratitude, which is another, it, it's a natural um, result of practice. Almost, I don't recall ever going, uh, teaching a retreat where people did not, some people, usually a good portion of the people, I'd say usually about like, you know, 95% or so, towards the end of the retreat, there's just this welling up of gratitude. Isn't it beautiful? You know, perhaps you felt that uh, in, in these days. Because there you are appreciating all of these moments. You're learning to, to, to get in touch with a purity of heart. And it just naturally wells up. Gratitude. And the Buddha said this is a wonderful thing. He has a whole, a whole discourse on blessings. Is there something over there? What's that? A deer and a fawn. A deer and a fawn. Oh, how nice. Appreciate it. Uh, (laughs) A deer. Isn't that beautiful? There's life. Right there. How sweet. If you go to Spirit Rock, they're all over the place. It's it's like, oh, yeah. Now let yourself just appreciate it. Okay. Okay, folks. <laughs> so, on, let it go. That's one, of, that's one of the wholesome states we're about to do in a moment, too. <laughs> Blessings supreme. To outstanding behavior, blameless action, open hands to all, selfless giving. This is a blessing supreme. To be reverent and humble, content and grateful. To hear the Dharma at the right time. This is a a blessing supreme. To be patient and respectful. To visit with spiritual people. To discuss the Dharma at the right time. This is a blessing supreme. To live simply and purely to see the noble truths, to realize the highest happiness. This is the bl- a blessing supreme, and on and on. He says, this is a good thing, to get in touch with all the blessings. So we'll just do a quick uh, gratitude practice, okay? And this is something you can take with you wherever you go, just for a moment. Go inside and think of some blessing in your life. It might be some body that you're grateful to or something that you're grateful for in your life. Just let it come to mind, come into your heart. Have an image of that person or that situation or that thing. You might even extend Silently, thanks, thank you to that person or to that blessing or to life. Now turn your awareness to feel the landscape of gratitude. Don't miss it. How wonderful that we can feel this, isn't it? Our blessings. Think of another one. I'll give you a chance to go for a few. So many blessings. 
It's just the fact that you're alive and in a body is an amazing blessing. You might think of somebody or something that you feel so grateful for, so blessed. Have an image, have a a felt sense. How fortunate we are, all of us here. And then you might express silently a gratitude. Thank you. to that person, to life. And as you let yourself open to it, turn your awareness to feel gratitude once again. What does it feel like? That's an amazing blessing itself. Okay. You can open your eyes now. I can see we're not going to get through all ten of these, but uh, I'll just give you a little taste. Another quality of uh, another wholesome state that you can cultivate and feel the the joy of is um, your virtue, your integrity, sila. This is, let's see, I have it here. The Buddha says, For one who leads a virtuous life, it is a natural law that remorse will not arise. For one free of remorse, it is a natural law that gladness will arise. For one who is glad at heart, it is a natural law that joy will arise. Isn't that wonderful? All we need to do is live with integrity and we have what the Buddha talked of as the bliss of blamelessness. It's one of my favorite phrases of all. Let's see if I can find it here. The bliss of blamelessness. Let's see if I can find one. Oh, yeah. He has one, um, one discourse for, to lay people who, whether or not you're practicing, he says there are four kinds of happiness that most anyone can understand. One is the happiness of being free of debt. Very practical, Right? A second is the happiness of having enough to care for yourself and for those who are close to you. It's a, it's a very wonderful quality of happiness. A third is being so, have such, having such good fortune, being prosperous enough that you can be generous with others. It feels really good, you know. Wonderful. And then the fourth is the bliss of blamelessness, where you have nothing to hide, where there's a, a clean feeling and you're living, you're living with integrity, congruent with your values. And then the discourse, he says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, those first three are not one-sixteenth 
as potent a source of happiness. I don't know how he figured that out. That's what it says, you know. Not one-sixteenth. And when you think about it, you can have all the resources in the world and if you're not living with integrity, you can't really enjoy it. Mm. So it's the, the delayed gratification that you get when you can restrain yourself from doing things that you will later regret. It's amazing how we're wired up just thinking, oh, this is going to feel so good. I know it'll be worth it. We can think up to the moment, but not have any idea what's going to go beyond that moment. Think of how many moments you've gone for and then had so many mind moments later on that you've regretted. So one thing that I like to do is kind of, I jump ahead in time if I'm thinking, you know, this might be good. And then I think, how will I feel later on looking back on this? On one, my first three-month retreat, the end of it, it really came down to this notion, it's not worth the ripples in my mind to disturb it like that. You know, not that I've been blameless for the last 32 years, but I know when I think about it where happiness really lies. And that's restraint from the from possibility of doing harm. I wanted to read this one, one great anecdote. This guy who was in prison, who uh, um, my... My friend uh, um, go, teaches in prison in Oregon, and she, uh, she teaches these heavy-duty guys. And this one guy who had trouble with his temper, because he, he was trained U.S. Special Forces, and he said, please, you know, help, me, help me get control of this. And she gave a, a, a challenge. Okay, when, you're, when you are about to act aggressively, here's the challenge. Just... Feel inside what it's going to feel like, what it feels like, and give yourself another option. And this guy got really excited about it. And uh, he said, okay, I'm up for a challenge. And he says, a few weeks later, you won't believe what happened this past week. I'm absolutely astounded. I actually felt joy from paying attention and then applying restraint. He explained that the inmates get assigned a seat in the cafeteria, and if they sit anywhere else, they get points. You don't want points because enough of them will put you in the hole, solitary. And I had a lot of points already, so I needed to be careful. Bummer, because one of the men sitting near me at lunch wouldn't stop razzing me. I tried to ignore him, but he wouldn't stop it. I was getting really pissed. Then he remembered the challenge. First, I noticed what the anger was doing in my body mindfulness. It was tight all over, really uncomfortable, and I thought that if I punched this guy, there'd be some release. At least it would shut him up. But then I thought, hey, the challenge was to not act aggressively. I started thinking about how much I want to punch this guy out because my anxiety was cranking up. But then I thought about the challenge to not act with aggression. Man, I knew if I didn't move from the table, I was going to punch him and lose the challenge. But if I did move, I'd get points and I could end up in the hole. Dang. He slapped his both knees, sitting straight and tall in his chair, and announced, I decided to just suck it up, move to another table. 
And get this, as soon as I sat down at the other table, I saw all the tension in my body just disappear like magic. Lunch tasted great. But, he continued, that's not the best part of it. The best part is that this guy came up to me after the meal and apologized. He apologized. He said, and this guy said, he was so stunned. Oh, no. He said he was so stunned by what I had done that he was left sitting there feeling ridiculous. Raising both hands in the air and leaning back in his chair, he exclaimed, no one ever apologizes in prison. Not to me, anyway. Not for trying to start a fight. And here was this guy saying he was sorry. You know, I think we both left feeling satisfied. Imagine that. <clears throat> so there's the, 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 the good feeling that comes from not causing suffering. And then there's the good feeling that comes. It's, a, it's one thing to not cause suffering, but it's another to feel good, to go for it because you want to go for that good feeling. You know, one is, uh-oh, I, I'm going to be sorry if I do this. Okay, you put on the brakes. But another is, let's go for the good feeling. Let's act with integrity. I'd like you to just think of some time in your life where you took the high road. You had a choice. Maybe somebody did you wrong or it was, or you felt like just punching somebody out and you didn't do it. And you just decided to go with the way that felt really good inside. As you recall it, have an image of the event. And let yourself feel the wholesomeness of your choice. Let yourself get in touch with how good that felt. Explore the landscape of this Bliss of blamelessness. And that's something that to keep in mind to go for. Not so that you don't feel lousy when you mess up, but to go for that good feeling. You can do it at any time. Okay, you can open your eyes. Hmm. Well, I've got a choice here. I think I'll do one more. If you can hang in there. Can you hang in there with this? Yeah. Uh, I'll just name the ones, uh, some of the others, so you get an idea of what I find is really important. Um, First, opening up to suffering as a path to joy. It's a direct embracing our dukkha um, and not being afraid of it. And there's a beautiful teaching that the Buddha gives. Suffering leads to faith. Suffering can be a causative factor for faith. It's, it's getting off the dependent origination wheel. Suffering can lead to faith. 
Faith can lead to joy. It can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy. Joy leads to contentment and happiness, leads to equanimity, all the way off, off the wheel. But it starts with suffering. To really understand suffering can lead you to the highest happiness. You might say, well, how does that work in the interest of time? I'll just ask you, how many people uh, came to practice uh, because of some suffering in their life? See, it works. That's what got you here, right? Suffering was the motivating force. We can just leave it here. If you want to go into it in more depth, I recommend Bhikkhu Bodhi's treatise called Transcendental Dependent Arising. It's a very impressive title. It's a really good treatise, just showing how this all works. Suffering, so really coming to terms with your suffering is a direct path to joy and happiness. Then there's the joy of letting go, of not picking up what you don't need, discerning between what you need from what you want and not picking up the extra baggage, letting go, simplifying your life. That feels so good. Letting go of your stories. We talked about that last time. Letting go of your limiting beliefs. You know, Letting go is movement from the second noble truth to the third noble truth. The cause of suffering is attachment. The end of suffering is freedom from that attachment. Letting go. The highest happiness. Develop a, li- a, a mind that clings to naught. So you can let yourself feel good every time you're, you are able to let go. You say, oh, I need this, I need this. And then, oh, do I need this? And feeling the release of that, letting yourself really experience that. There's the happiness, that the wholesome state that can come from mudita, you know, from connection with others. There's that quality of just connection and delight in tuning into the happiness of others. And I don't have time to, to do a practice here. But I recommend, if you can get into mudita, it's really good stuff. Because, as the Dalai Lama says, you know, if your happiness depends on your own well-being, it's very limited. But if it can be activated by others around you, you up your odds by six billion to one. Okay. To just tune into, there's a little bit more happiness in life and you can have that rub off on you. Uh, and it's a wonderful practice. There's the, the, the wholesome state of caring and compassion, of expressing your caring. There's the wholesome state, the highest one, the joy of just being. But the one I think I want to end with, uh, and you're hanging in pretty well, is uh, about loving kindness, particularly for ourselves. Because in in, in the Course, this is kind of about uh, two-thirds of the way through, kind of building up to it. Not getting who you are is really... Um, does nobody a service 
It's not a service to anyone. And this is one of the central snags that people have in their practice. Almost everybody, I've been teaching for quite some time, and I'd say mm, maybe about 98%, that's kind of conservative estimate, um, have some work to do when they first start practice about really opening up and loving themselves. But when you do, even to just incline the mind that way, as you do, that is a huge step in your practice. Then you're not putting a whole lot of energy into justifying your existence and seeing if you're really okay. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. Now let's really see what the truth is about. But um, this metta for self is, uh, is, is, is a key juncture. And so, um, so I'd like to do a little something with you. And I'll say, by the way, from the outset, that I came to practice because I really didn't like myself. Like, really didn't. You know? And the thought of liking myself, let alone loving myself, was just, you know, not this lifetime. I don't think it's possible. And I want you to know you can train your heart and mind to really love yourself. Why, why not? Everybody else gets who you are. You, you're, you're busy there thinking, oh no, if, I, if, I, if people see me, you know, if they find out who I really am, then they won't like me. Well, it comes through anyway. You're the only one that doesn't know it. In fact, I don't think I... Did I talk about this? No. Uh, <laughs> if you... If you met somebody who, who got your jokes, who understood your take on the world, who really got your perspective on things, how would you feel about meeting them? Pretty good. You'd be ecstatic. Right? Where have you been all my life? Right? There's one person who gets your jokes, really understands your take on the world, really gets it the way you see it. Unfortunately, they happen to be right inside your own skin. But if you met yourself and they were outside of you, you'd be tickled pink. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. What a cool person this is. Yeah. Uh, Albert Einstein has this, this, uh, this phrase, an optical delusion of consciousness. We live in an optical delusion of consciousness. Just from our own perspective, we can't see the truth. So I want to share with you uh, a, a practice that came to me on... Uh, one metta retreat that I was doing at IMS. I was doing Brahma Viharas for six weeks. And I was doing the loving kindness, and it was kind of, it was okay, you know. It, it wasn't juicy. It wasn't really moist, but it was okay, and I wasn't trying to force it. And I'd been doing it for about three days, and then somebody came to mind who I knew really loved me. 
And it just tripped me, my thought for a moment, why do they love me? And that's when I got into this little uh, exercise that um, really had a profound effect on my practice. It was like, in some ways, before and after this. So if it's useful for you, use it in whatever way. Um, Just close your eyes and think of someone who you really enjoy being with. There's an easy love that flows between you. Not necessarily a complicated relationship if, if it's possible. Just when you're with, the, you just enjoy hanging out together. And it can be a pet as well. It can be a, a, a child. It can be maybe even somebody from your past if nobody particular uh, alive. Although if there's somebody alive, that's, that's good. And just have an image of them And as you do, just feel that love that flows between you. That feels pretty good right there. That's a wholesome state. And as you get in touch with that energy that flows between you, you just enjoy being with each other for some strange reason. That's how it is. Just imagine for a few moments being in their reality, inhabiting their consciousness, and see who they see when they're with their friend. Take in all the things that touch them, that make them so happy to hang out with you. Notice all the different qualities. Your kindness, your sincerity, your playfulness, your whatever, all the various qualities. There's so many of them. Drink yourself in. Really get who you are. Just see if this person is worthy of love. And just see, the more that they're genuinely in touch with that, the happier they are, then everybody gets the goodies. And now let your consciousness come right back inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected with it. Stay connected to those, those noble qualities. This is, it's like classic metta. You reflect on your noble qualities, but sometimes seeing it from another perspective lets you get in touch with it. And delight, rejoice of the gifts that you've been given. And just wish yourself well. Just incline your mind. Let your experience be however it is. Just incline your mind to well-wishing because your happiness is the greatest gift you can give to anyone, to everyone.
And as you're feeling that, just turn your awareness to feel what it's like to be kind to yourself, to really appreciate, even for a glimpse, even for a moment, you have that capacity and how good it feels. This is a wholesome state. And this is cultivating that wholesome state. Okay, if you like, you can open your eyes. If you feel like staying there, that's fine too. And as I say, the highest happiness of all is the, the joy of liberation. When we're really free, when our happiness doesn't depend on any thought, any external, when there's just complete ease of being, the joy of being, when there's nothing more that's needed, is the highest release, the sure heart's release. And as the Buddha said, if we aim for that highest one, all the others will follow. But I want you to, maybe you get by now, the idea of how much happiness this path has to offer. Not to miss it, not to be so focused on suffering and the end of suffering that you miss all the possibilities of, of well-being within you. And, and what, a, what an act of generosity that is to everybody, the more you are in touch with it. So this is from Rumi. Keep knocking, and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look outside to see who's there. Keep knocking, and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look outside to see who's there. So let's sit for a moment. sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.